WHYY and BillyPenn.com. It is hitting season. Hey there, podcast pals. I'm John Stolness from The Good Fight and Billy Penn. You can follow me on Twitter at John Stolness. And coming up, we are going to talk about a month of hitting season. We're going to recap one of the greatest months of Phillies baseball we have ever seen in this city. Heroes galore, moments to remember. We'll run down uh, kind of a a checklist or, a, you know, we'll go through the timeline of the month of August and, and just go through some of the memories that this team gave us here in what was a magical month of August. We'll get into some concerns about the bullpen a little bit. Obviously, disappointing game on Wednesday as the bullpen couldn't finish off um, what was a truly dramatic moment uh, with Bryce Harper hitting his 300th home run. Uh, but we're going to talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about some starting rotation questions moving forward. And I'm going to talk with Russell Carlton, who is the author of a new book called The New Ball Game, The Not-So-Hidden Forces Shaping Modern Baseball. Russell uh, does a great job writing about baseball, and uh, this is a terrific book uh, that we're going to talk to him about coming up here in the next few minutes here on Hitting Season. All right, let's jump into it. And again, the month of August, a miracle month, really. From start to finish, the narratives, the storylines, the heroes, the moments, so many games played at Citizens Bank Park, so many home games in which the Phillies rose to the occasion. They finished the month 17 and 10. Honestly, it could have been better because a number of the losses were late losses with blown leads by the bullpen. Uh, they they honestly could have gone something like 19 and 8 or, or 20 and 7, but we will take a 17 and 10 month because... It was so, there were so many, it's hard to put into words how many moments this team gave us. And the Phillies had a chance to finish off this month in maybe the most dramatic fashion that we had seen up to this point. Because all month long, they've been coming back from Leeds and all month long, their superstars have been hitting one huge home run after another. After another. It's a month where the offense finally came alive. They hit 59 home they hit 59 home runs in the month of August tied for third most in baseball history. And coming into the game here on Wednesday had a chance to sweep the Angels and and run their winning streak to 6 games but uh, in the end uh, a late bullpen malfunction by Craig Kimbrell and Garrett Stubbs uh, with a allowing a, a third strike say pass ball or wild pitch to go past him, uh, which really keyed a late Angels ninth inning rally and prevented the Phillies from sweeping the Angels. But still, the Phillies took two out of three to take another series here during this magical month and finished the nine-game homestand at seven and two. They took two of three from the Giants. They swept the Angels and then took two of three from the, uh, sorry, they swept the uh, Cardinals and then took two of three from the Angels. The Phillies are now 49 and 27 since June 3rd. Only the Braves are better in record and run differential. The Phillies are first in baseball in ERA since June 3rd, third in batting average, fourth in home runs and OPS, and fifth in runs scored. And this game on Sunday, I mean, on Wednesday, I mean, golly, what what a baseball game. And hat tip to the Angels, who on Tuesday put... Five of their veteran, best veteran players who are on expiring contracts, most of whom they picked up at the trade deadline when they were trying to make a run for the postseason, put them on waivers, offering them to anyone who wants to pick up their salaries. And um, the, the waiver process hadn't completed, so these guys were still in the lineup and, and still pitching. And uh, one of those guys, former Philly Matt Moore, is the one who gave up Bryce Harper's 300th home run in, in the game on Wednesday in the, in the uh, eighth inning of that game. But um, credit the Angels who have given up on the season for coming back and and mounting that ninth inning rally. But it was a, it was a crushing defeat on Wednesday. Trey Turner in the sixth inning, with yet again, yet another dramatic three-run home run to give the Phillies a 6-5 to five lead. But then, of course, Gregory Soto and Sir Anthony Dominguez can't keep the Angels off the board. They give up two runs in the top of the eighth inning, and the Phillies suddenly found themselves down 7-6 to six once again. But then Bryce Harper, who has done it over and over again, year after year, the most clutch athlete we have ever seen in this city. We have never seen an athlete who can do what Bryce Harper does, who has come through in the big moment 
as often as Bryce Harper has. He did it again on Wednesday and gave the fans a moment that they will never forget. Capping off a month that was full of moments like this, many of them authored by Harper, who should be, if Mookie Betts wasn't in the equation, would absolutely be the National League Player of the Month for August. Trailing 7-6, with two outs and a runner on first base, Bryce Harper did it again on the first pitch from Moore, launching a, I don't know how it got out. <laughs> the man is just so strong, but a, a high fly ball to right center field that just kept going. It just kept going. And it gave the Phillies an 8-7 to seven lead for his 300th career home run. Bryce Harper, the crowd going absolutely insane, erupts as Harper shakes his fist around first base, throwing his hands up in the air, pounding on his chest as he rounds the bases, finally touches home. I mean, all, all decorum out the window here. I mean, he, he's just outside of himself. And then as he's celebrating with his teammates in the dugouts, the fans around the stadium calling for a, a curtain call from Bryce Harper, which is harder to do now when, when umpires are forcing hitters to observe the pitch timer. But um, they, uh, they called a timeout so that Harper could come out and acknowledge the crowd and in the most in typical Harper fashion, getting the crowd even more revved up and then picking up his jersey front and kissing Phillies, kissing the word Phillies on his jersey twice, did it twice. I mean, what a moment, what a moment for everyone who was in that stadium who will never forget where they were, will never forget the fact that they were there. And for those of us who are watching on television or maybe following along on the radio, we'll never forget where we were for that, for that home run. Unfortunately, the Phillies were not able, not able to convert it into a victory because uh, Craig Kimbrell's August struggles continued. Um, he struck out Mike Moustakis uh, to lead off the inning, uh, but the ball got by Garrett Stubbs. It's a ball that Stubbs absolutely has to block. If JT Real Muto's behind the plate, and Rob Thompson honestly should have put Real Muto in the game. He should have pin pinch hit for Garrett Stubbs in the eighth inning, and he should have had JT Real Muto behind the plate for the ninth inning. It, that should have been something that Rob Thompson did. I think Rob Thompson messed up there. But... The ball gets by Stubbs, Moustakis gets to first base, and then the next hitter hits a 14-hopper ground ball single into right field, so some bad luck there. You know, if it's an, an inch or two the other way, it could be a double play ball. But instead, it's first and third, nobody out. Uh, the Angels get a sacrifice fly, and then Brandon Drury hits an opposite field two-run home run to give the Angels a 10-8 win and negate Bryce Harper's 300th, go -ahead, 300th home run. It felt like his 300th go-ahead home run of the month, but Bryce Harper has just done this all season long. It's it's what he's done, and he is made for these moments. It's one of the reasons why you want to get back to October so badly, because you know that he can do it again. He did it in Game 5 of the National League Championship Series. He did it throughout this series. He did it against the Giants in the first series of this homestand, and unfortunately, Craig Kimbrell blew that game as well. Now, that just tied the game. Kimbrell wasn't able to uh, protect the tie and, and, and gave up the lead, but Harper is made for these moments. He's just, he's built for this city. And I love what he said after the game. He said, you know, a lot of people think I'm pandering. I'm really not pandering. I love it here. I love this team. I love this city. And what we have seen this month is this city, we I mean, we've been talking about vibes all month. Remember, I had Jason Delgandio on the podcast uh, a couple podcasts ago from Temple University talking about the vibes, talking about uh, the Trey Turner effect. And, and honestly, this surprisingly, Kevin Stocker uh, brought this up on the Phillies radio broadcast. He brought up my Billy Penn article um, with uh, recapping my conversation with Jason Delgandio on this on this very issue, which was which was very cool. A lot of people pointed that out on on Twitter to me. The fact that they were talking about the Billy Penn article that came from our conversation on the podcast and it. Everybody could feel it. This city, you listening to this podcast, have you ever loved a Phillies team more than this one? I imagine most of you listening to this podcast, maybe you weren't really, you weren't around maybe during the 93 team. And it was, I never thought that I would love a team as much as I love that 1993 team. Because that was the team my senior year in high school. I was 17 during that summer. I mean, that's just the summer of your your age 17 year going that with that team being a, a pennant winner and all the personalities, I never thought I would experience anything like that again. And the 23 Phillies have frustrated us uh, at, at numerous times during the course of the season. But we are, we are now witnessing the blossoming, the blooming love affair between the city and, and the Philadelphia Phillies. And it, and it all started with the Trey Turner thing. 
And so we're going to talk about that in just a second. But I, I did put out a Twitter poll because the Harper home run was a phenomenal moment here on Wednesday. But the fact that they lost the game was eating away at me. It still does eat at me a little bit. And of course, the moment itself will never be forgotten. When he hit that ball and the entire stadium held its breath, waiting to see, could, could he do it again? Could he bring this team back from the brink again? I mean, it was one thing for Trey Turner to hit the three-run home run and then the team to lose it. You figure at that point, how many, how many more times can this team come back? How many more times can this team overcome a deficit? Alec Bohm did the same thing the night before. Against, uh, you know, and they intentionally walked Bryce Harper uh, to get to Alec Bohm. And Alec Bohm hits a three-run home run with the Phillies down 4-2 to in the sixth, which triggers a sixth-run inning, and the Phillies go on to win 12-7 to and hit five home runs in that game. Like, how many more times can could they do it? And Bryce Harper had one more time left in him here in what has been an unbelievably magical month, a pixie-dust-sprinkled month of August. But then the Phillies lost the game. <laughs> Craig Kimbrell came out and lost the game, and it wasn't all Kimbrell. But again, he wasn't sharp. It was his third game, third uh, third outing in four days, and he had to come in. And Rob Thompson started warming him up with the Phillies up twelve to seven, and Andrew Bellotti struggling to get the final out uh, in the game on Tuesday. Why are you starting? I mean, we were just talking a few weeks ago about Craig Kimbrell needing more time, needing to. He's already soaring past his career high in appearances with the, with the rate that he was going on, the pace he was going on. So, so the loss, the Kimbrel, the the Kimbrel blown save was eating at me in the hours after the game on Wednesday. And even as I sit down now, and I record this here on Wednesday night, it's it it really it does eat at me a little bit that they didn't win. The Bryce Harper moment to me it lost a little bit of its luster because it didn't ultimately result in a win. And so I asked on Twitter for people. What is sticking with you more from today's game against the Angels? And so far, I've had a little over 1,000 people vote on this. It's got like 47 minutes left in the poll. So I'm going to just read these results because I don't think they're going to— they haven't changed much in the, in the few hours that I've had it up. Was, was Harper's amazing home run sticking with you more, or was the fact that they lost the game sticking with you more? And to your credit, those of you listening, a little more than two-thirds of you said that Harper's amazing home run is your big takeaway from this game, not the fact they lost. A little over 3 in 10 said the fact that they lost is what's sticking with you more. Almost 7 in 10 said Harper's amazing home run is sticking with you more. And some of the some of the replies I got were, were pretty good here. And they help, they help make me feel better. Uh, Joe Giglio, who's at WIP, replied to this. Uh, and he said the home run. The people in the park for it will probably forget the opponent and, over, and, and the outcome eventually. But no one will forget being there for his 300th, especially to cap off this month. Uh, Eric Golden. Um, at Eric S. Golden, who's a WIP producer, uh, responded as well. He said, Harper's home run is the only answer. They're going to blow games. They're going to come from behind and win. That's all part of a baseball season. The moments are the memories that last forever. It will be a where were you when moment, similar to when they signed him. And that's that's a good takeaway for me, is that so often when we're watching sports, and I think the, the Eagles' Super Bowl loss was a little bit like this for me too, we can get so wrapped up in the final result. Did they win or did they lose that we can lose the enjoyment of a special moment like this and we can lose sight of its importance in the grand scheme of things. And I think we, you listening, I, should learn to approach sports by appreciating the moments more than the result sometimes. And I think this is one of those times that this was an this was an all-time Phillies moment. And the fact that Kimbrell and some bad luck and Garrett Stubbs prevented them from winning the game doesn't make the moment any less special. Now, if this had been a playoff game, that would be different. If this was game five of the National League Championship Series, that would be different. Um, if this was a World Series, or if it was a game they really needed, like if they're if they're trailing the wild card by two games right now, and every win matters, then that would probably be the larger takeaway. But even after this loss, this loss didn't do a whole lot to affect their their standing in the National League wild card race. They've, they've this magical month of August, this seventeen and ten run in August has solidified their spot in the wild card standings because they're not gonna they're not gonna catch the Braves and everyone knows that, but they still have a three game lead on the Cubs for that top wild card spot, and they're five games up on the Diamondbacks and the Giants for the third wild card spot. 
And then all those teams are clear of Cincinnati by one game. So the Reds are one game out of the playoff spot uh, behind Arizona and San Francisco with Miami three games out of the wildcard spot. The, the Phillies are now eight games up on the Marlins. And they're six games up on the Reds. So this really didn't hurt them all that much in terms of the wildcard chase. They still have a 98% chance of making the playoffs, according to Fangraphs and Baseball Reference. So this is one of those situations where you had a 7-2 and two homestand. You went 17-10 and 10 in August. You hit more home runs in the month of August than you've ever hit in any other month as a franchise. The third most home runs in a month in the sports history, 59 home runs. And the, the moments from start to finish were storybook. It would have been great. It would have been, it would have been the storybook ending if Harper's home run had capped off the month. And I think that's part of what is, as a storyteller, as someone who wanted to come on here and weave this narrative of this month of August, I wanted Harper's moment to be the last moment we remember, to, to, to take us into September riding that wave. And the fact that they lost just makes it a little bit messy. And I think that's more of what's bothering me about this, is that the month ended a little messy. But you lose sight of the fact that they took two of three from the Angels. They swept the Cardinals, dominating that team, and took two of three from the Giants in a very competitive series that the Phillies really had to win. They won so many games at home this month. The, the home cooking was, 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 was cooking hard. So, yes, if the, if the Phillies had really needed this game, really needed this win, the blown save and the fact that Harper's 300th home run was quote-unquote wasted would probably be weighing on me a little more and should weigh on us all a little bit more. But they're in a solid position. And the fact that this may go down as one of the best months of baseball in the city's history, the Harper home run is a part of that. And like some of these the folks responding to my tweet, my Twitter poll said, people aren't generally going to remember who they were playing, what the result of the game was. They're going to remember Bryce Harper coming up in that situation and hitting that home run in front of that crowd, getting that 300th home run that way. In a way that is storybook, in a way that is kind of perfect. And this Phillies team is imperfect. And so you can, you can say maybe it did end perfectly because this team is imperfect. But uh, what a tremendous homestand this team had. What a tremendous love affair this city now has with this baseball team. And it is so exciting to see where they can go in September. But before we move on to September, let's recap this month of August. And we'll go back to August 1st. The month began with the team in Miami. Uh, they're playing the Marlins in a four-game series. The Phillies were 58 and 49, so nine games over 500. Uh, they won the first game of the four-game series on the last day of July, and the Phillies took three out of four to start off the month. And it was all punctuated on August 1st by Nick Castellanos's go-ahead two-run home run in the ninth inning off of David Robertson, former Phillies closer. The Marlins had just picked him up. I think it was his first game with the Marlins after being acquired at the trade deadline. Their only loss in that series, however, and this is where the Trey Turner ballad began, was in a 12-inning defeat in which Trey Turner famously booted a ground ball to prolong the game. Uh, if, he, if he catches the ball, uh, the Phillies, they, they win that game and they sweep that series. But instead, he boots it. He was in the midst of his offensive struggles. And after the game, there was the, the famous video of him clearly dejected, clearly depressed, clearly in a bad place mentally owning the fact that he cost them the game. Coming right out and saying, I lost the game. It's my fault. And Philly fans saw that video. They, they saw his, his human side, you know, and, and he'd been up front and he'd been, a, he'd been a guy who's been talking about his struggles all season long. But I think, I think the compassion, and yes, national media, Phillies fans, Philadelphia sports fans do have compassion. We, we saw that last year with Alec Bohm. We, when, when a player gets real with us, we embrace that player. And, the, and that's when all the conversation began about giving Trey Turner a standing ovation when he returned home on August 4th to open up their series against the Kansas City Royals. And so August 4th comes. It's a Friday. The Phillies return home for a three-game series against Kansas City. And Trey Turner comes to the plate and at, in every plate appearance received a standing ovation from the fans. The Phillies took two of three from Kansas City. Trey Turner got a hit that night. And in the 19 games the Phillies played at home in the month of August, Trey Turner got a hit in every single one of those games. And he has said, 
the team has said, everyone acknowledges that the Phillies fans, you listening to this podcast, may have saved his season. Not may have, that you did. You saved his season. And since then, Trey Turner has been one of the hottest hitters in baseball, completely turning around his season. Trey Turner started the month of August with an OPS of 667. After his home run in the eighth inning, pardon me, in the seventh inning, his OPS was 748. That's insane. (laughs) I mean, he's, since the ovation, Trey Turner hitting 368 and slugging 768 with nine home runs in the month of August to go along with nine doubles, 21 runs, and 26 RBIs. Just absolutely insane production from a guy who could not have been struggling more. And it all began on August 4th, the first game of their series against the Kansas City Royals. The Phillies would go on to take two of three from Kansas City. Uh, Looking to August 9th, the Phillies were hosting the Nationals for a four-game series. And on August 9th, one of the single greatest nights of baseball at Citizens Bank Park, and really in Philadelphia history. That was, of course, the night Michael Lorenzen threw a no-hitter, the 15th no-hitter in franchise history, with his wife and his mother in in the crowd crying and, and living and dying with each and every pitch. It was the same night that Weston Wilson, a career minor league minor leaguer with 2,836 plate appearances in the minors to his credit before he got his first Major League plate appearance, hitting a home run in that first Major League plate appearance. His father in the stands, he was crying as that happened. He was the first Philly since Marlon Anderson in 1999 to hit a home run in his first plate appearance in the big leagues. And that was also the same night that Nick Castellanos had a multi-home run game, the second of those home runs being the 200th home run of his career. An unforgettable night at Citizens Bank Park on August 9th. On August 19th, the Phillies exploded in the eighth inning of an 11-3 win in Washington. Trey Turner became the third Philly ever to hit two home runs in the same inning. Von Hayes did it in 80 and Andy Semenik did it in 1949. That was, of course, the game where I tweeted that Trey Turner stunk again. <laughs> and then he goes and hits two home runs, and everybody on Twitter hated me for a good 48 hours there. August 20th, the Phillies played the Nationals at the Little League Classic with the kids from Media Pennsylvania's team playing that day and Phillies players in the crowd cheering them on. Unfortunately, Media and the Phillies lost that day, but it was a special day that we don't forget. August 21st, Bryce Harper hits an inside-the-park home run in a 10-4 win against the Giants in a huge series where the Phillies won two out of three. Uh, August 22nd, the Phillies were down 3-2 in the ninth inning facing Giants closer Camilo Duvall when Trey Turner hit a game-winning two-run, two-out single off of Duvall's glove into right center field for a walk-off 4-3 win. And then the Phillies finished off off the month with a sweep of the Cardinals, taking two out of three from the Angels, including all of the many heroics that we saw here on Wednesday, August 30th. Again, I mentioned the Phillies set a team record with 59 home runs in the month of August. Here are some, here, here's an, I mean, I still can't believe this one. The Phillies hit 35 home runs with runners on base in the month of August. They had only hit 61 during the season up until that point, up until the start of August, from opening day to July 31st, 61. And they hit 35 home runs with runners on base in the month of August. The Phillies played nine series. They won seven of them. One of them was the sweep of the Cardinals. They split a two-game series with Toronto and lost the other two series in Minnesota and Washington. And I'm sure there are other moments I'm forgetting. There are other big home runs. Alec Bohm hit a big that big three-run home run after uh, Harper intentionally walked him. We also, Johan Rojas hit a home run off of a uh, off of a position player who was throwing 60, 70 miles an hour. Um, but it was also the month Yo- Johan Rojas got called up and started making all these insane plays defensively in center field. Um, Todd Zalecki has uh, in his newsletter. If you don't subscribe to his newsletter, you should. It's it's very very good. But he also has this posted on MLB.com. But it talked about all the home runs the Phillies hit here in the month of August and and looked at some of the big ones. And uh, there there really were just so many so many memorable ones. Kyle Schwarber had a monster month of August. Schwarber hit 360 with nine home runs and 22 RBIs in the month of August. I mean, just just it's it's just ridiculous. No, 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 pardon me. He had 10 home runs this month. 10 home runs in the month of August. 
Um, it's just insane production from Schwarber, insane production from pretty much everybody on this team. And it will be a month of baseball we will never forget. And it has everybody excited about September. And as you're looking ahead to September, bear in mind that the Phillies have 30 games left. 20 of them are against teams that are either 500 or worse. And after they finish playing the Brewers this weekend in Milwaukee, the Braves will be the only winning team that they will face during the course of the regular season, the rest of the regular season. They'll face the Braves seven more times. So they get the Brewers, and then they have seven games against the Braves. After that, it's all teams 500 or worse. So look for the Phillies to shake off this loss here on Wednesday and and continue uh, continue rolling into September. At least that's what we're all hoping for, that these bats stay hot. You hate to see a, a calendar flipping shouldn't mean anything, but uh, you just you, you want this to you want this to roll right on through September and into October because this team in August, this was the October 22 Phillies. Right. And this is this is really the team that I thought they would be from the start of the season. When your star players were playing like stars, you already had the younger guys who were turning into star players. Bryson Stott is becoming a star. Brandon Marsh is becoming a star. Uh, Alec Bohm is becoming a, a, I don't know if he's becoming a star, but a, a, such a well-rounded hitter. Those three guys are dangerous. And then you put them in a lineup with five other guys who are always really dangerous. They're, they're, where, do you, where do you hide if you're a pitcher right now facing this lineup? It's scary. They're every bit as good. I wrote an article back in May, I think right before the Phillies played the Braves, where I said the Phillies were every bit as talented as the Braves, and the Braves have since lapped the Phillies. But this is this is the team I thought we were going to get from opening day. This is what I thought it was going to be. Trey Turner doing this. Schwarber, Harper, Real Muto, um, Castellanos, the young guys, the starting rotation. This is what I thought we were going to get. It happened in August. Fine, great. They're in great position now, and I'm 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 not looking to give horse in the mouth. But I think this team is every bit as talented as the Atlanta Braves. When you look at this lineup, that lineup's as good as Atlanta's lineup. When they're all doing this, this is what they're capable of. So, yes, I think they are absolutely every bit as good as the Atlanta Braves, and we'll see here over the course of the last month in September when they play the Braves seven more times. Now, there are some concerns about the bullpen that have come up during the course of this month, and specifically Craig Kimbrell. It has not been a lockdown unit. Even with all four of their late-inning high-leverage arms back, you've got Gregory Soto, Sir Anthony Dominguez, Jose Alvarado, and Craig Kimbrell are all available. Matthew Strom is healthy. Um, you're going to probably uh, start to move Michael Lorenzen or somebody else to the bullpen, I think, after during the week of September 11th after their doubleheader against the Braves. Uh, but the bullpen gave up nine runs over three games in this series against the Angels. Not great. Uh, and Kimbrell has had a really rough month of August. Three blown saves all of them after dramatic home runs that should have won games. His ERA this month, 5.73. Today, I mentioned earlier, he pitched for the third time in four days, and on that other day, he was warming up in the bullpen as the Phillies held a five-run lead. That didn't make any sense to me at all. But Kimbrell uh, blew a save on August 2nd after Brandon Marsh hit a two-run home run in the 10th inning of that loss in Miami, only for Kimbrell to give up two in the bottom of the inning to send the game onward into the 11th. On August 23rd, Bryce Harper hit the game-tying three-run home run in the bottom of the ninth to, to tie uh, that series finale against the Giants. The Phillies going for the sweep of the Giants, and that's a big Bryce Harper moment. That ultimately didn't end up in them winning the game. Kimbrell then gave up three in the 10th to lose uh, for the Phillies to lose an extra innings in that one. I think eight to six, the final there. Uh, and then he blew the save in Harper's two, after Harper's two run home run today. Kimbrell also gave up a go ahead run in the ninth inning of the Phillies five to four loss to the Nationals on August 8th. Now, today was the third time in 11 August appearances that Kimbrell allowed multiple runs. He had done that just three times in his 48 pre-August appearances, and he hadn't done it since May 3rd. So Kimbrell leaking a little bit of oil. It might be time for maybe him to get a strategic injured list stint to get him rested up and, and ready to go for the playoffs. But it ain't just Kimbrell. Gregory Soto walked the first two hitters he faced in the eighth inning, putting Sir Anthony Dominguez in a tough spot. And Dominguez is not missing many bats with his fastball right now. Those runs came around to score. When Sir Anthony Dominguez is hitting the corners, he's very, very difficult to hit. That's true with pretty much any pitcher. When Sir Anthony Dominguez is leaving pitches over the middle of the plate, whether it's down or up, 
he's getting knocked around. And so he's, his velocity is good. 97, his velocity is still kind of where, it, you know, it's not where it was when he first came up, but he's still throwing 97, 98, but it's, it's, he's not where he wants to be. And right now the late inning relievers are not where they want to be. They are giving up uh, a few too many base runners and making things just a little bit shaky in the eighth and ninth inning. So we'll see how this shakes out here over the month of September, how Rob Thompson utilizes some of these guys. It would be really great if Reynaldo Lopez or Matt Moore somehow falls to them in the waiver order, I would love, even though Matt Moore and gave up the two-run home run to Harper, Harper is the hottest hitter in the planet outside of Mookie Betts. I mean, you could put Randy Johnson out there against them, and I would believe that Harper could hit a home run against him. And Reynaldo Lopez, how motivated are you to really air it out for a team that is looking to actively dump you? And he gave up the three-run home run to Trey Turner in the game on Wednesday. So I would I would take either of those guys and put them in the Phillies' bullpen just to give them a little bit more electricity uh, in the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings just to give some of those other guys a little bit of a break. Um, one other thing to mention before we get to Russell Carlton, starting rotation questions moving forward. I mentioned that the Phillies are going to go back to a five-man rotation after the doubleheader they play against the Braves on September 11th. And we know Aaron Nola and uh, Zach Wheeler are their um, are their top two starters. Rob Thompson told WIP today that Aaron Nola is absolutely a game two starter in the playoffs for them. And he's pitched really well. We talked about that on the last episode of the podcast in depth. Hopefully, Aranola will keep that up. But the Phillies have some interesting questions with regard to their numbers three through six starters. Which one of these guys gets relegated back to the bullpen? Taiwan Walker, Ranger Suarez, Michael Lorenzen, or Christopher Sanchez? I wrote an article about this for The Good Fight this week. You can check that out. Um, Walker, Lorenzen, and Sanchez all started in this series against the Angels. And if we're being totally honest, neither guy acquitted himself terrifically. Both, all three guys were dancing in and out of trouble, gave up a lot of hits, gave up a lot of base runners. None of them did very well uh, in this series against the Angels. Walker on Friday was dancing between the raindrops uh, a little bit. Um, he gave a hit. He allowed 10 base runners in five and two-thirds innings, uh, but finished with just three earned runs allowed, but gave up eight hits and two walks in the 6-4 to four win on Monday. Since July 5th, he has a 4.25 ERA and a 4.80 FIP in nine starts. He's walking 4.4 batters per nine, and his first inning troubles have been glaring. He's allowing a 306, 387, 472 slash line in the first inning and has a 6.66 ERA in the opening frame so far this year. That's not somebody that you want to, that's not something you want to see from like a game three or a game four starter in the playoffs. But I don't think Walker is headed to the bullpen. He's almost certainly going to stay in the start rotation. He leads those number three through six starters in terms of FWAR at 2.0, just ahead of Ranger Suarez. Suarez, we're expecting to see come off the injured list this weekend in Milwaukee. Uh, he has a nine, a 3.88 ERA in 97 and third innings so far this year. 1.9 Fangraphs wins above replacement. He's doing a real good job keeping the ball in the ballpark. Just He hasn't been sharp in some starts, but Suarez is I think he's the guy who starts game three of a playoff series, unless something crazy happens here in the month of September. Neither of those two guys are leaving the starting rotation, which brings us to Michael Lorenzen and Christopher Sanchez. Lorenzen uh, was knocked around a little bit, um, gave up four runs in and pitched into the sixth inning, which is what he did in his previous start. Uh, they just, he, he allowed the base, he had allowed the leadoff runner on, uh, the, the uh, yeah, the leadoff hitter on in uh, all six of his innings. He was in some trouble there. Now, he pitches to contact, and he'll be the first to tell you that he pitches to contact, and sometimes it means he's going to get, like, 19 fly ball outs and pitch a no-hitter, and sometimes it means he's going to give up a bunch of singles and give up a bunch of hits. And that's what he did in the start on Tuesday. But he also does have the no-hitter under his belt, and Lorenzen, uh, before these uh, last three starts, had a 1.11 ERA uh, over six starts in 40 and two-thirds innings from July 6th through August 9th, up until the no-no. So... You know he's been kind of up and down. It's it's been a little bit it's a little bit a little bit weird. Um, Christopher Sanchez uh, as a number five starter one, since being called up has been a revelation since joining the rotation. Outside of a six run five inning performance against the Royals, he had not given up more than three earned runs in any of his other twelve starts. He had a sixty four to twelve strikeout to walk ratio in the in his uh, start before the game here on Wednesday. Um, he had only walked ten of two hundred fifty nine batters since his call up. 
Uh, Corey Seidman noted only George Kirby, Logan Webb, Zach Eflin, and Braxton Garrett had a lower rate in that span. Sanchez, coming into the game on Wednesday, had a 3.33 ERA, which was better than Lorenzen's 3.69. Lorenzen's FIP of 4.13 is better than Sanchez's 4.31. And while Sanchez is better with strikeouts and walks, he also gives up more home runs than Lorenzen, 1.5 to 1.03 per nine innings. So, it's a difficult situation, and right now, I would probably put Christopher Sanchez in the number five spot. I'd have, uh, well, actually, I'd probably have him in the number four spot. Again, the game on Wednesday, not great. Didn't make it through five innings, got knocked around by the Angels a little bit. That's really his first, his only his second bad start since being called up. I think my five-man rotation is looking like Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola, Ranger Suarez, Christopher Sanchez, and Taiwan Walker right now. And if you're asking me who I'm starting in game four of a playoff series... I'm probably giving the ball to Chris Sanchez, I think. Now, Taiwan Walker is a vet, so maybe you want him in that spot, but you can make the argument that Christopher Sanchez has been really their third best pitcher since being called up. And there's still five weeks in the regular season for the playoff starters to work itself out and all that, but uh, a decision is going to come sooner on who to send to the bullpen for the stretch drive. And, and I think that's going to be Michael Lorenzen. Um, I think the other five starters have more upside in the rotation. And really, one of the things Dombrowski got Lorenzen for was his experience in the bullpen and to be kind of that long man guy. What you might see is them actually just doubling up Christopher Sanchez and Michael Lorenzen every fifth day as a way to kind of keep both of those guys fresh and limit their innings. That's almost certainly what you're going to see. So if Christopher Sanchez is getting starts, and maybe it's Christopher Sanchez, Sanchez starting one game and then Michael Lorenzen starting the next game, but both of those guys kind of piggybacking on each other. That's that, that would make sense to me. Like if you're facing a righty heavy lineup, you probably start Michael Lorenzen and then you bring in Christopher Sanchez in like the fourth inning. Um, and then you flip it around. If like, if you've got a lefty heavy lineup, you use Christopher Sanchez and then you bring in Michael Lorenzen later on. So uh, different things that the Phillies can do here with having six viable major league starters. It's a good problem to have. One of the things we like to do here on this podcast is talk to some really good writers about baseball, especially when they've got a good book out. And uh, Russell Carlton's been on the show with us before. We had him on a couple of years ago, I think, when he came out with his first book called The Shift. And uh, Russell is out with a new book. It's called The New Ball Game, The Not-So-Hidden Forces Shaping Modern Baseball. Uh, most of you who are big baseball fans, you already follow Russell on Twitter. But if you uh, if you don't, you can follow him at Pizza Cutter 4 And uh, Russell's also a contributor to Baseball Prospectus. So uh, Russell's got his hands in a lot of baseball cookie jars right now, and we're going to talk to him about the book here uh, for the next few minutes on Hitting Season. Russell, thanks for coming on. How are you? Uh, life is amazing. I'm glad to hear that. I love a good, I love a good uh, amazing uh, when folks come on the podcast. And, you know, I think one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong about you, but I, I think you're a guy who understands kind of the the new metrics in baseball some of the sabermetric stuff that we've gotten to know over the years and um i know we've had conversations about uh, the infield shift and, and all those different kinds of things but you know your book essentially is talking about how how baseball has changed over the years and how it's it's a different game now than it was when i started watching in the 1980s it's totally totally different skill sets totally you know the the, the quality of the players themselves are are so much different now than they were uh, however long ago. But like, what have you seen over these last few years that has really taken baseball to a different place? I know that's a, that's a broad question, but if you can kind of hone in on, you know, where are we right now in, in, terms, of, in terms of this game and, and where it used to be? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they hear that, they're thinking about, oh, the new rule changes. The, the thing I always kind of hone in on that, you know, few people ever talk about is that we have witnessed a complete transformation in how pitching is used. And I, I, I say this, you know, every everybody's a reliever, even the starters now. And, you know, it used to be that when you were a pitcher, you went out there and you pitched until you were tired or ineffective or both. And now we have roles, and it started with the relievers in the ninth inning, where you have, you come in at a certain time and you leave at a certain time, and that fundamentally changed pitching. It meant it meant that we needed more pitchers. We went to a short burst model, so now we've got like five different relievers every game, and we got to keep thirteen guys in the roster. That changed how uh, how teams 
uh, set up their bench because there's fewer roster spots available for those folks. It meant that they had to be more multi-positionalists, so it changed how teams did development there. And so you, you kind of go on down the line, and I think a lot of it stems from that right there. You know, it's a piece that when I wrote the book, there are a lot of things that I think over the past few years people have kind of said, oh, I, 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 the game feels so different, but I can't quite put my finger on why. And I think in writing this book, I, I was really trying to say, well, you know, look, here's here it is, and, and my you know my language for doing that, and I, you mentioned I'm a numbers guy, you know, I use a lot of graphs, and when you look at it on a graph, you go, oh, that's that funny feeling in my tummy that I, I just haven't <laughs> been able to quite put it on. But yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, over time, you know, we have seen these things happen. And I mean, I think that was the the, the thing with the pitchers has has been the big one. I devote an entire chapter to, uh, to to that evolution. But I think that's that's the big piece. And you know, there are a number of other things that that I go into in the book that that fall into that. So I mean, it's it is a uh, it, it it was a book where um, I really wanted to tackle that particular question: Why does this game feel so different? I, in your book, you you mentioned Ian Anderson of the Braves in the 21 World Series getting pulled after five no-hit innings. Uh, it's just not something that would have been done. I, I wonder with regards to that, and it's probably not so in the playoffs because I do think managers, and maybe this has been done, are when, when there's a – because your margin for error is so small in the postseason, you are – a starting pitcher is going to get a quicker hook. And you have you, yes. you're not using your relievers quite as much as you ordinarily would, so you can kind of go to your more high leverage guys in a playoff series. But I thought it was very interesting how Rob Thompson allowed Michael Lorenzen to finish his no hitter and throw about 123 pitches when he did so. I thought it was even more interesting this week that Gabe Kapler, one of the most sabermetrically analytically inclined managers, maybe the most analytically inclined manager in baseball, allowed Alex Cobb to throw over 130 pitches as he tried to complete the no-hitter. How surprised were you at that? And the fact, you know, it was unfortunate for Cobb and and for Kapler that at the end of the day, it kind of went all to waste anyway because he gave up the no-hitter with two outs in the ninth. Right, yeah. I mean, it... It, it is a delicate balance, and it, it, it's one that, you know, I am a numbers guy, but, you know, my secret superpower is that I'm also uh, trained as a psychotherapist. You know, I, I deal very much with the human element. And, yeah, there's a certain amount of, hey, if you're up at the 120, 130 mark, we have research that says that's a risk factor for injury for someone. But at the same time... You know, I, I kind of get it. You know, how often do you have a chance to throw a no-hitter? I don't know, maybe once in your life, you know. Yeah. I, uh, and there there is a certain tension that, that I think that, that I write about in the book, and it's, you know, we have spent so much time chasing efficiency for the sake of efficiency that we forgot to look at what should this game look like. And yeah. I think that, you know, you talk about, you know, pitchers getting pulled from from no hitters and we've seen that several times this year where it's happened um, where they were deep into a no hitter and and they still got the hook and you can defend that from a from the perspective of well you know a no hitter is just one game and they still got to win the game and the game was close and the pitch count was up and you know and and, and maybe it's entirely defensible from from that perspective um, but I think that you know, we've we've spent so much time in the analytics movement chasing efficiency so much, and the game has followed that pathway that I think that, you know, we used to be overruled by what I call magical thinking and, you know, that there was heart and clutch and grit and magical and magical mm. fairy dust that would that was blessing certain teams and, you know, it was it was destined to be or whatever. And I mean that's all magical hooey. But at the same time, I mean, I think now the game is overrun with linear thinking, which is, mm. you know, we've we've stopped asking questions that don't have an answer. Um, we've stopped even thinking about those questions. You know, I, if you want to know, you know, what's what's the risk ratio for for Michael Lorenzen throwing all those pitches, um, then I could I could probably calculate that out for you if you really wanted me to. But you know what. Do, do we want a game where, you know, even if it's it's just kind of an individual accomplishment and, yeah, it's just a random game in August, well, you know, that's one of those games where somebody could say, I was there. Yeah, it's and, a know, moment. How do you define those, those, those moments in life? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there's, there's a certain balance that does have to be drawn there. And I, I think that that's, 
in in writing this book, I found in my own self as I reflected on my own you know my my own feelings as I was writing these words. Mm-hmm. It was something that that I had to deal with of you know what is this game supposed to look like and and why don't we ask that question anymore? Well, and that's the question I want to ask you. Like, where where are your boundaries? Because as a stat guy, and I'm a stat guy, and I, I there are sure. certain stats I really like, and there are stats I I think are just I, I don't really have a whole lot of use for. Statcast continues to come out with with sure. with all these with all this new data and a lot of the data is stuff that teams use that is not publicly available for us to see but you know there is some data that does allow you to kind of track and say you know hey if a pitcher does this then he might struggle you know moving down the line or if he doesn't do this then 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 this might happen same thing with a hitter there are tendencies that a lot of these statistics can kind of get at and they they can't 100% predict the future which is what i think a lot of people who are really too into the weeds with a lot of the numbers think that they can do and and predict the future which of course you you can't do but for 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 where you are like where where's the dividing line like where and i guess i guess that whole there's there's different dividing lines depending on the subject but um like have we have we started to see do you think a shift back in the other direction away from analytics and and maybe we're all as fans trying to get a little bit of balance between some of the old school thinking and the new school thinking, the the feel of the game versus the numbers. I feel like I'm start, starting to get pulled back, back towards the middle a little bit, where, whereas I think like five years ago, I was very much into the into the weeds with the numbers. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how, how fans are perceiving it. I will tell you that at this point, teams are very, very, very invested in those numbers. And I can't say I blame them because... I mean, realistically, you have given 30 different teams a, a mandate to go out and beat the other 29, and if they can find a way that, that does that more efficiently or more effectively, they are going to follow that. Now, I mean, one of the critiques of modern baseball is that it's really boring. I mean, it's strikeouts and home runs, and yeah, home runs are great, but goodness, there's so many strikeouts. And, you know, I could, and I go through the in the book, it's perfectly rational why there's all these strikeouts and why everybody's playing swing real hard in case you hit it. And, and that's, there, there are reasons why that happens. I, I think that MLB as, as kind of an organization has started to, to strike back on that. Um, and, and has, because I think, you know, the fans are realizing that this is kind of boring and, you know, baseball's a game, yeah. but MLB is an entertainment company. And if people think it's boring, they're not going to watch yeah. the product. So I think a lot of these rule changes here are in response to that where is the boundary question that you just asked. I mean, you if you can't tell people to do something that is against their own self-interest, you can change the rules of the game to make sure that they don't do it or to change the incentives so that they'll do something that's more entertaining. And I think MLB is trying to pick that fight. They tried banning the shift, which... You know, I mean, it hasn't had all that much of an effect. They did the pitch clock, which, you know, has rankled some folks, but mm-hmm. it did what it said on the label. It's knocked down yeah. game times, and, and it's it's done that. Um, but I think I think that uh, MLB has, has is becoming very much active around trying to reshape the game in ways that... Um, that make it a more entertaining product. I think, you know, the NFL has done that with, with their game and they've been a little more successful because the, you know, people want to see passing. And so they've put in rules that, that encourage passing and they get more passing and everybody's happy. Um, with, with baseball, it's a little more difficult because there's that element of tradition and why are you messing with the rules and leave it alone um, versus um, well, if we make this change, it will be a more entertaining style of play. And, and I mean, that that particular, uh, I think that particular tension is going to define the next 10 years of the game. You know, stuff mm-hmm. will happen on the field and that'll be fun to watch. But if you really want to see something, watch kind of that meta game where MLB is trying to reshape itself into, yeah. into something. And, and I think one of the things that, that baseball is, is trying to grapple with, and it's one of the things you mentioned in the book, it's not just how pitchers are being used. It's the the stuff that pitchers can throw now. You, back in the 80s, 
no one threw 100 miles an hour. I mean, like, it was, that's a unicorn if you found somebody who could throw 100 miles an hour. Now there's, you know, three dozen guys, four dozen guys who can throw 100 miles, who can reach 100 miles an hour. If you don't have a 100 mile an hour guy in your bullpen or two, you're kind of behind the times now, as it were. And so everybody throws upper 90s for sure. Um, Some of these guys have just devastating breaking stuff. It's harder than ever for a hitter to get hits. And so I can understand, as a Phillies fan, during the first four months of the season, the Phillies, as an offensive unit, really struggled to hit home runs. And they, they really struggled to hit home runs with, with runners on base. And it was a real grind to try and score runs because it's really hard to group three, four, five, six hits and walks together in the same inning to, to put a crooked number on the board. Whereas with one swing of the bat, with two guys on, all of a sudden you've got a three spot and you take a two-run deficit into a one-run lead. As a fan, that's a lot easier. Like, even even I can understand, my goodness, that was far less exhausting than, than trying to watch these guys string together single, single, double, single, you know? So right. is, is there, as long as pitchers are, are throwing like this, is there going to be a way for, for, for baseball to deviate away from the home run? Because I just don't see it. Well, I mean, you start getting into things like, you can limit the number of pitchers on a roster. You can move the mound back. You can put in things that make pitchers kind of stay out there longer. There's, um, there's all sorts of. There's the double hook DH where you lose your DH if you take out the starter. And it's the idea there that really what you want is you want pitchers just pitching more tired, and so that they theoretically wouldn't be as good, or they'd have to switch to a style that's more. That's that's more more like how they pitched in the '80s, where they weren't throwing as fast, and maybe some of them could have, but you know they were expected to go seven eight innings, and so you had to save a little something. Well, now you know a five and dive is an average, is literally an average start right now. The average start lasts 15 outs, and it, and you can you can try to play around with the rules like that if you want to. But, you know, that, that starts getting into, well, how much, you know, rule tinkering will baseball fans uh, uh, allow? And you could probably do it. I, I mean, you're certainly not going to, um, you're certainly not going to get, uh, take uh, pitchers and tell them, hey, throw slower or put speed limits on them. You can't get, you can't take that away from them. So, I mean, you either have to go with these sort of non-traditional uh, ideas, or you have to change the physics of the game because there's a sym- an asymmetry in baseball. If I throw the ball faster from the mound, you as the batter can't just throw it back faster at me. You know, mm-hmm. as 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 the hitter, you've got to react faster. And now you're up against the limits of neuropsychology. How fast mm-hmm. can you make that decision on that ball that's coming at you? And you know, as with each mile an hour of um, of of that the pitch goes you lose more milliseconds and you know there's not a whole lot of those milliseconds to to begin with to make that decision so i mean it is it it is the sort of thing where baseball's in in a, in a tough spot and i i can't say that uh, that there's an easy solution for it i mean if there was an easy one they would have done it um, but mlb has at least said you know what we're going to have this fight and we're going to try and come up with some ways to to kind of rebalance things but as of right now, I, I, I don't know I don't know that there there is a winning path for MLB in that particular area of the fight with all the strikeouts and, and uh, just kind of dealing with all these pitchers who you're right, ninety eight in a slider. Yeah. Yeah, what do you do with that? <laughs> and then, yeah. and then they start working on knuckle curves. They're like, okay, forget it, guys. Just you know, oh, put goodness. the put the bats away. Um, so a couple a couple of things before I let you go. Um, for some of our listeners, they're still not totally up on sabermetrics, or there might be sure. some metrics that we talk about that I talk about on the podcast. They 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 may not know what you know what what numbers to to look at. I mean, we traditional fans look at batting average in, in ERA, and there there's value in in those numbers to be sure to a degree. You know, they tell a story, they tell a certain story. But um, as someone who's really who's really deeply involved in 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 the 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 sabermetrics of the game would give give folks one offensive number that maybe you go to first to really get a good sense of how well a hitter is hitting and one pitching statistic that you think best describes or best sums up or gives you a good snapshot of of what a pitcher is doing i mean i know it's better to give more than one number to look at a whole a whole bunch of numbers but if you could kind of zone in on one of each so there's there's two the two numbers for um, 
that I would do on offense, you want to go to a stat called OPS, which is on-base percentage plus slugging. And batting average is cool, but it pretends that walks never happened, and that's kind of weird. Um, on-base percentage at least tells you um, how often somebody did something useful. And slugging percentage has its problems, but um, it at least gives you a better idea of power. And the first thing you want to do is not make an out. And the second thing you want to do is, if you can, hit a high-value hit. And so uh, OPS is, is something that's real easy to get, it's real easy to find, it's real easy to calculate, and it's easy to understand um, mm -hmm. what's going on there. And the higher, the better. And it's also a, a stat that we know is really well correlated with how well a team uh, scores runs, which is obviously the entire point. Um, for, for pitchers... Um, I go a slightly different way, and I, I go with, um, you know, we're used to seeing ERA, but that E always kind of gets me. I actually tell people, I want you to go and find RA9, which is just how many runs did you give up per nine innings, whether they were mm. earned or not, because that's really, really what it comes down to as a pitcher. And it, it's, you know, it can get a little... Um, it, it can get a little weird in terms of fluctuations and small sample sizes. And for relievers, there's not really a whole lot of good stats because they just they don't pitch a whole lot in terms of full workload. Mm -hmm. But if, if you really want to get, I, I think that we, we so have, have been on ERA for so long that, well, I mean, why does it matter if the run scored because somebody committed an error at some point? And then, like the next seven guys, you let get hits, and I mean, at some point, their their run scots got to start being counted again. Yeah, because yeah. that's that's on that's on you. And you know, I think that we just kind of get rid of that that earned thing, um, and just say how how many runs was it? And I think that's when when you do that, you you get just a better idea of okay, how how really good is this pitcher? Um, and I mean, ERA I think is actually a pretty good stat for for what it's trying to do, but. Um, if you want to do something that's um, maybe even less advanced than, than ERA, <laughs> um, just go for RA9. Okay. All right. I, I know I don't use RA9 all that often, so I'll have to check that out um, and uh, start to incorporate that into the, the, the pitching stats that I, that I use when I'm kind of looking at guys. Last thing for you here, Russell, before we let you go, if there's one thing you want people to take away from your book, again, the new ball game, the not-so-hidden forces shaping modern baseball, which you all should go get on Amazon, uh, wherever it is you get books, um, it, you can find it there. Um, what's one big takeaway you want people to have from, from, from reading your book? I want people to be able to, to, to look at this moment and, and realize that we are in kind of a weird moment in baseball history. I mean, the, the last 10 years really have been strange. And it's odd because, you know, it unfolded over 10 years of real life, which is a long time. Um, but at, so at, at the same time, it feels like it was just so such slow glacial change. But at the same time, you know, you think back, well, baseball was just very different 10 years ago, and, and you know, not to mention 20. And that that's a real feeling. I want people to know that. And that, that, you know, here I'll sound like a therapist that I am, that feeling is valid. And that, you know, I want people to know that in this book, I talk about where that came from. Yes, why it makes sense on a logical perspective, but also, you know, what what is, you know, where where is the what is the thing that we also lost along the way? You know, mm -hmm. what is the, in, in the analytic movement, you know, I talk about what we gained, but, but also what we lost. And I think that if, as somebody who has been knee deep in the analytic movement for goodness knows how long, 17 years or whatever <laughs> that I've been doing this, um, that, 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 you know, there, that there has to be some reckoning around what analytics unto itself has done in the game as well. And I, I don't shy away from that in the book, and I hope that, you know, people come away from it and, and, and say, well, you know, it was it, it at least gave a very complete picture of of the analytic movement in the game and also, you know, just kind of where the game is right now. Mm. Well, if you love baseball, it is a real good uh, a real good push pull between, you know, the analytics and, and the history of the game and, and the way things were for folks like me in their mid 40s. There's a lot of nostalgia that continues to to 
pull me back towards the the baseball I grew up with. And I think most people, when they think about baseball, the baseball that they love the most is the baseball they were first introduced to. And so it takes some getting used to, uh, to new rules, to new ways of playing the game. But, um, you know, I think, I think baseball's in, in real good shape right now. I love a lot of the new rules that they've put in place this year, but obviously this is a game that, like you mentioned, is, is kind of in a, a very interesting place in its history. So, folks, I, I highly recommend the book. It's called The New Ball Game, The Not-So-Hidden Forces Shaping Modern Baseball. You can read all of Russell Carlton's stuff over at Baseball Prospectus as well. Russell, thank you so much for coming back on Hitting Season again. Look forward to talking to you again down the road. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much. All right, now it's time for our stat of the week. It's a short one here, but it's just incredible. We had been talking all season long how much the Phillies had struggled hitting home runs with runners on base. I mentioned the number with runners on base, but specifically with more than one runner on base, three run home runs. The Phillies for the first four months of the season had, had hit just five, three run home runs, five, three run home runs through July 31st. That's five in four months in the month of August alone, including Trey Turner's three run home run in the game here on Wednesday, the Phillies hit twice as many, 10 three-run home runs this month compared to five through the first four months of the 2023 regular season. The big question is, can they keep it going? Can they keep hitting season rolling through September? It's going to be a tough ask in Milwaukee as the Brewers can throw a whole lot of pitching at you. Um, so the Phils may have a, a, a tough task trying to duplicate the offensive firepower that they saw um, that they were able to display at Citizens Bank Park against some weaker pitching staffs in the Cardinals and uh, and uh, the the Angels here over these last three days. But uh, clearly the offense on a roll, feeling good about themselves, feeling very confident. And this should be a phenomenal series between the Phillies and the Brewers. Uh, both these teams will come into the series with identical records. Uh, at 74 and 59, the Brewers are leading the National League Central by three games over the Cubs. So just a, a series crackling with National League playoff implications. And it'll be, a, it'll be a tough chore for the Phillies to try to take two out of three from the Brewers in Milwaukee. But the way they've been playing, you can't put anything past how this baseball team is going about its business right now. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of Hit and Season. And want to remind you to also check out our Hit and Season Patreon. You can find some of the bonus podcasts we're doing over there. It's at patreon.com slash hit and season. And also our Hit and Season landing page over at billypen.com. We've got so much going on over there. I'm writing articles there. Justin's writing articles there to go along with our podcasts. Go to billypen.com slash hit and season. And of course, now the good news, we're back up on Apple Podcasts. So you can hear us everywhere you get your podcast. Tell a friend and leave a five-star rating and a review. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We will talk to you next time right here on Hit and Season. Hit and Season.